What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and host of the What to Know podcast. I am excited to be speaking with the founding partner of Transmedia Capital and the co-founder, we are very careful to make sure that we get that title right, of The Last Mile, which is a cool project that we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview with uh, Chris Redlitz, who I had the pleasure of meeting not too long ago at John Battelle and Brian Monahan's uh, Shift Forum. So welcome. Thanks for having me here. It's my pleasure. So I want to jump right in. You have had an interesting career in the sense that it really, I think as I said in our pre-prep questions, it's like three sort of different stages, right? You were the average, you probably were far from average, but business guy, you're working at Reebok doing sales, marketing, product uh, marketing. And then you sort of moved into this founder role, founder, you know, doing a few different startups. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And then uh, over the last several years, I think eight years, maybe you founded Transmedia Capital and are now investing in companies Talk a little bit about, like, those last two seem to go well together. The first one, it seems like a little bit of a non sequitur. Well, it's funny because I never thought I would be involved in technology. I certainly, in my 20s, didn't think I'd be a venture capitalist. So this was not a direct path by any means. And I think the the common thread through all of that is that I've really followed my passion. It It may sound a little trite, but it's true. It's like I've done things that I've always wanted to do. Uh, I dropped out of college for two years to sail on a, uh, a boat from California to Hawaii and spent nine months in Hawaii because that was a passion of mine for sailing. And when I came back, my parents sort of wiped their brow and said, oh, he's done. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm taking off. I'm going to go to Alta, Utah and spend a year skiing and get immersed in that because that's what I wanted to do. And I figured if I didn't get a chance to do that then, then I may, may never get a chance to pursue those at that depth. So when I got involved in, in, in my early career, I had a retail store and it was all about running. I had a running store. I was a competitive runner and, uh, I really got involved in Reebok very, not directly. A friend of mine was my rep selling me Reebok shoes in 1981 and very few people were buying them. And I was almost doing him as a favor to my friend who was my training partner. And, you know, we, we got to know each other. Uh, I started carrying the shoes and it's been chronicled at length, but the Reebok fitness boom of the eighties was one of the most phenomenal growth stories of any corporation in history of, of, you know, our country. Uh, the fact that, when I started with the company, we were doing about 10 million in sales. When I left, we were doing about 4 billion. And we went public during that time. So I was a young guy working with all my friends in this company that just exploded. Uh, so I was really fortunate to be in a position where that sort of set the tone for me to do th- things that I was really into. And uh, I made a segue into technology, but it really started with always sort of following a passion that I was really interested in. Well, that's cool. And now that I have a little bit of the backstory, that does make more sense. So I can see that entrepreneurial spirit early. And I have to say I'm a little envious of the sailing to Hawaii and the uh, the year off to ski. But um, 
back to the startup. So moving from Reebok on to, uh, you know, taking a founding CEO position in a few different startups like Ad Auction, Decision Maker Media, and Body Ami, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, talk about some of the lessons, because I think one of the things that uh, anyone that does a startup usually ends up doing several startups, right? Because you sort of usually don't do the first one right, or if you do the first one right, there's obviously a lot of interest in you doing others. But um, what has that taught you? What have been a couple of lessons that you've taken away from that process? Yeah, I mean, you you really learn that you have to take risk, obviously. Doing a startup is super risky, um, and you have to understand failure and success. And, you know, I was fortunate at auction. Uh, I co-founded that in 1997, and that was shortly after I left Reebok. Uh, and that thing exploded. You know, we, it was sort of in the, in the upstream with the late 90s and the internet boom, but it was the first online media exchange to buy and sell advertising, basically. Uh, it took off, we raised almost $100 million for that company, and then the crash happened. We were actually staged to go public, and the bottom dropped out of the public market. So you go from this euphoric, fast growth to things just disappearing. Uh, so that, that really taught me a lot of lessons as well. Like, you know, how do you deal with success and how do you deal with fear very quickly? And that was my first real startup. So using that as a segue, um, you now are the founding partner of uh, Transmedia Capital. You've invested in a lot of companies, several of which are very recognizable. And we'll talk a little bit about the investing philosophy in a second. Um, I've started to notice a little bit of a theme and it's kind of fun for me because I wrote a book on location-based marketing about six years ago. So seeing companies like Urban Airship on there or Level Up, um, talk about a couple of successes. I mean, Snap is one, you know, the founder or the holding, uh, company for Snapchat. Talk a little bit about like some of the successes you've had and like, did you know out of the gate that this was going to be the one? I mean, you probably, if you're going to invest in the company, always feel good about them. But, you know, have, have there been different feelings with some of them that you've invested in where you kind of knew like, yeah, this is, this is going to be a real rocket ship? Honestly, I don't think you ever know. Some of the successes in our portfolio, we didn't see out of the gate. And some are as a result of pivots, which sometimes uh, you see... You know, Twitter was a pivot, right? Um, and so some of those things are not apparent when you initially invest. I mean, at our stage, we're investing in founders. Founders with good ideas, not necessarily with a market opportunity because markets are being disrupted or they're creating new markets. So the market might not even exist when we're investing, but we're investing in, in those, the strength of founders. And we really look at, uh, I really have a, a, an acronym, it's a three Ps. I look for passion, presence and, and perseverance. And those type of things are keys to being successful to an entrepreneur. But you just don't know out the gate if this is going to be successful. Uh, and markets evolve, markets you know open up and they shut. So it's, it's really tough to tell. I mean, a company like Wish, which is extraordinarily successful today, um, his initial premise was different than what it is today. It really dealt with advertising, not e-commerce. But he really felt and, and found a way to use his particular al algorithms effectively in commerce, and you know they're, they're a rocket ship right now. So you just never know when you're initially investing. Yeah, so that's helpful. Um, and, and just to add to that, it sounds like, you know, just looking at your site, you, you said you like technical founders with genuine inspiration, 
folks that are strong communicators and good team builders, right? So, you know, I sense that not everyone always looks for those same things. That feels fairly pragmatic, and I like the three Ps. That's sort of a better way to summarize it. As you're doing this, you know, have there been folks where you took a look at and maybe you whiffed a little bit where it's like, oh, I really should have gotten in on that IPO on Facebook or whatever it is, you know, or not IPO, but obviously early rounds of investing. Anything that you are willing to talk about? I don't think anybody wants to admit the things I missed, but yeah, sure, we've missed some. Um, frankly, we were residing in Rocket Space, the same space that Uber was in. I knew the guys at Uber very early on, but it wasn't within our investment premise at that time, so it wasn't something that was appropriate for us to invest in. Um, so you could say, well, we missed that because we were literally, you know, desks away from them. Um, so, you know, I, I think to be successful, you can't look back because you're going to miss them. You know, many people missed Airbnb. And those that identified the strength of those founders have obviously had success. But, you know, for them, raising money wasn't easy. You know, and again, there's an example of establishing a new market that didn't exist. You know, re re renting out your room or putting in an air mattress in your floor didn't really make a lot of sense at the time. So those kind of things you don't necessarily identify, but um, yeah, we miss them all the time. And, and really venture economics are such that you're gonna get a few home runs in every portfolio and that kind of makes up the difference. So that's kind of what we look for. And fortunately we've got you know, a few in both funds now that are doing very well. Well, to that end, so celebrating some of the, the you know, home runs um, Snap or Snapchat has really been one of those. And I know a lot of people, particularly in the marketing world, poo-pooed that early, right? It's like, oh, that's just a, not even millennial, but like sort of a Gen Z thing. You know, who wants something where the pictures disappear? You're not going to be able to advertise on that one. So I'm assuming that, first of all, the presence of the leadership skills that you were looking for were in place there. But was there something else there that made you say, you know what, this is going to, this feels like a good one to, to bet on? Well, we actually got in sort of the back door because we had a company called Scan, which we invested in very early, and they were basically a QR code scanning app. And I worked very closely with that founding team. Uh, they entered the market when there was a bunch of scanning apps. And the thing that really intrigued us about them was that they were just really focused, talented young guys, literally right out of college. They developed something, um, and it's that's a whole other story, but they were able to get that to number one, the number one scanning app uh, in, the, in the app store. And when uh, Evan Spiegel was looking at how to do um, SnapScan uh, and, and introduce that whole new product, they identified Scan as probably the, the, the top company to look at. That negotiation went very quickly, and that now has been a successful uh, integration. So we got in fairly early, but we weren't investors directly initially. It was through Scan, but uh, you know we've continued that relationship with Snap since. Well, it's great, and sometimes you know in investing, it's being in the right place at the right time. Right? That's true. Yeah. Um, I will say, as a little aside, people that know me that are listening to this podcast will chuckle a little bit because. I've been sort of the antichrist when it comes to QR codes, um, mainly because as a marketer, we have sort of failed you know, the, the QR code. And I wrote a post called The Death of the QR Code, which got a lot of play. Um, anyway, so that's funny. And that, that is a cool story to hear that you get in through the back door. 
Uh, continuing a little bit on this theme, and then we will shift gears to the last mile. Uh, I met you at, as I mentioned, John Battelle and, and Brian's um, shift forum. Uh, you were kind enough to bring a couple of your better known clients. So Steph Curry, uh, you know, I think most people know him. He's a household name, but he's a guard for the Golden State Warriors. Also co-founder of a company called Slice. And then Ryan Leslie, uh, who's the CEO of a company called Superphone, but also a Grammy-nominated singer and a very talented, smart guy. Dealing with folks like that, um, different, same, better, worse than other founders, you know, are they a little bit more white glove or have you found that they're a little bit more mature maybe because they've already been on the world stage a little bit? Well, I mean, with when I worked with Reebok, I, I dealt with a lot of athletes. So I understood those type of personalities. Some are easy, some are tough to work with. Those two particular guys are incredibly smart, passionate about whatever they do. Uh, before we invested in Slice, I wanted to make sure that Steph was not just putting his name on it, that he was actually part of the product. So we spent uh, a pretty intense time understanding that. And he has been really supportive and participating. Obviously, he's got a pretty active day job. But, um, you know, he's been very active. And it was important for us to make sure that he was engaged. And same with Ryan. You know, Ryan started this company because he noticed a need in the marketplace within music and, and to uh, establish a communication with his fans. Uh, Ryan is another phenomenal story and someone who's really passionate not only about his music but about his business. So I think if you find people of note that are well-known celebrity, whatnot, if you find that they really are engaged with something and they're really involved and, and they're motivated just like any other founder. I mean, I treat uh, Steph and Ryan just like other founders, and, and if they respond, then they'll be successful. But I haven't found those. I found those guys to be a joy to work with. Well, it's good to know. And, and uh, for those listening in, uh, a couple of episodes back, we did have the luxury of sitting down with Ryan Leslie. So maybe someday we'll have the luxury of sitting down with Steph Curry as well. We'll, we'll try to make that happen. That would be great. Um, but, you know, I was impressed at just how smart and uh, articulate uh, Ryan was and just some of the, the wisdom that he shared. So I do want to shift gears to something that's also very entrepreneurial, but is also a nice public service, right? So I'll actually flip-flop the, the setup. Um, you started a company or a, a foundation organization, The Last Mile, with your wife um, and, and business partner. Um, she is the co-founder. One of the things that kind of spoke to you, and then I want to talk about sort of how this all came about, is we have a ridiculous problem in this country. I don't think that would be a shock, but I was a little astounded looking at some of the stats that you had on The Last Mile site. So the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, if I'm getting this right yet 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Um, I made a little bit of a joke in here, but like, are we a little bit sort of incarceration happy or do we just happen to have, you know, more bad hombres as I called them, uh, you know, in this country? And obviously that's a little bit of a loaded question. Well, we had a, a huge boost uh, during the sort of tough on crime era and it really started uh, in the uh, really war against drugs with Nixon really and then Reagan. And, and it just accelerated from there, really. And we institute a lot of laws that over-incarcerated. You know, the, the three strikes law was one of the worst ever in my, in my mind, where you give someone a life sentence for a nonviolent third strike. 
So those type of laws sort of piled on each other, and all of a sudden we were in this 800% increase over that decade of, of incarcerated people to the point where I think today people are saying enough. And that was kind of one of the impetus for, for us to do what we're doing is to not only to say this enough, but do something about it. And we recognized that we had some wherewithal here sitting in Silicon Valley, 30 minutes from San Quentin, and we have a network of people that we could leverage. And so we, we really put that together. We started seven years ago. We started with an entrepreneurship program and really got some, some great initial success. And the last two and a half years, we've morphed that into a coding program. So now we have a technology incubator that we're building in San Quentin. It's going to be 22,000 square feet, and it's going to be state-of-the-art. We think it'll be a prototype that we can take across the country um, and really start uh, allowing people to get trained and break that rate of recidivism, which now is at you know somewhere around 60%. And the biggest job is being employed. So if we can turn out potential software engineers tapping into a market that people are looking for that skill, I think we're going to have some good success. So, I mean, kudos, first of all, for doing that. And I, a little more backstory, which I think I mentioned to you and Beverly, um, your partner and uh, wife, um, I worked at Georgetown Law School sort of as a, you know, part-time job while I was going to school and worked for this thing called the Street Law Clinic. They sent second and third year law students out into the local high schools and the local prisons. And I was really, it was an eye-opening experience for me. And I think one of the things that's been so impressive um, is the fact that you've done this in a nonpartisan way, right? Because this is, what, incarceration is a big thing where, you know, the more conservatives tend to want to put more people in jail and the more liberal want to sort of have less people in jail. But you seem to have found this sweet spot that happens to be very pragmatic. Well, it's true. It is, it is a... Uh it's kind of nice that both parties are in line with this. It's one of the few things they, they agree on today, I think. But uh, yeah, I mean, the support that we've gotten, and and really, if if I look back seven years ago and say, I'm going to do a partnership with the state of California Corrections, I would have think that's pretty crazy. But the public-private partnership that we've established is actually working. And so it's not only teaching inmates a skill and helping them be successful, but it's also showing that, that these two public and private can work together. And, and I think that's really important as we scale across the country that whatever state we end up, that we can pull in businesses that can participate and we can use our example as success and a precedent for others to follow. Yeah, and it's sort of a no-brainer, right? That it's like, guess what? If you put someone in prison and then you let them get out five, 10 years later and you haven't done anything to give them skills, especially a lot of these more men than women, you know, go in at age 18, 20, 21, guess what? They're going to go out because they don't have any means to support themselves. So teaching them, you know, real world skills and particularly a set of skills where there's a dearth of talent, right? Like we're going to just need more coders and, and uh, people that are in tech. I would like you to just to share real quickly, though, it's sort of a funny story because I think when you went into San Quentin and got this epiphany or had this epiphany several years ago, um, Beverly was a little bit skeptical. So maybe you could just share how you got her to come around or, you know, what that took to sort of get her to realize, like, you know what, this is going to work and this is a worthwhile project. Well, uh, I'll, uh, I'll um, actually give it a, a little more of an R rating here, but I walked in the house and this was after my first presentation at San Quentin and I was pr 
presenting to a group of men about entrepreneurship and business skills and something they were just thirsting to learn about. And the reception was really the best reception I'd ever received from an, any type of audience. So I was thinking as I'm coming home, I was like, wow, we could do something. So I walk in the door and I'm like, Beverly, we're going to start a technology incubator in San Quentin. She said, no effing way am I going in prison, right? And um, she's pretty, she was pretty adamant about that. So my first sell job was to her before anything else. And she, we did our research and she went in and met some of the guys and, and I guess it was sort of reluctantly agreed to do it. But fortunately today, she's the executive director. She is, um, you know, fully immersed in this. And I'll tell you what, when she walks in prison, these guys sit up straight. They could care less about me now, but when Beverly walks in, it's a big deal. So it was really cool. You know, we've, we've worked together for 20 years in business, but for us to share this, experience is huge and you know we have the the fortunate um opportunity to stand at the gate when some of these guys get out that is awesome and, and what i'll tell you just for color I, I had the luxury of meeting beverly at the newco you know shift forum as well she's a petite woman she's very attractive but you could tell immediately that she is a no-nonsense you know like whip smart and i can completely see her <laughs> giving you the no effing way chris so Thank you for sharing that. Um, as we bring this home, so you know, doing our last shift here, I do like to ask a question that uh, I think helps impart the, you know, I'm interviewing the people that are inspirations, they're doing amazing things, but I like to know who's inspiring you. So, you know, a business book that you've read recently or are reading that really is kind of getting you to think differently or really giving you inspiration that you'd like to, you know, talk about for 30 seconds. Uh, yeah, I'm actually reading two right now, and I, I have them here just to make sure that I, I get the titles. This is why right. I ask ahead of time, too. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You yeah. ask me, it's like, oh, wait a second, <laughs> what, what are those books? I'm glad you did. Um, but I'm reading two. One is called Disruptors uh, Feast by Fritz von Possen, and, and basically it talks about trend lines and how trending impacts innovation. Like, example is trending of mobile technology, then all of these things, like Uber wouldn't exist without the evolution of mobile technology. So that's a really good one, and it really talks about sort of legacy businesses that are being interrupted, which helps me as an investor. The other one is called Never Split the Difference, and it's written by Chris Voss, who is a one of the top negotiators, right? And it's how do you communicate? The premise really is about negotiation, but it's also about communication. So it's a really interesting angle on how he used hostage negotiation and how you can relate that to business. So those are pretty cool. The one thing, though, that a book that I carry with me constantly in paperback, just so I can hand it out to people, it's called Living with a Seal. And it was written by Jesse Itzler, who is a pretty well-known entrepreneur, and his wife is Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx. And Jesse is a, um, a runner and endurance guy, and you have to read the book to understand how the whole story, story uh, came about, but he invited this guy who was a Navy SEAL into his home in the Upper East Side uh, to live with him for 30 days, and he wanted to go from being able to do 20 push-ups to, being, to, to be able to do 1,000 push-ups, and then all this regiment that they go through. It's a phenomenally inspirational book. Um, so that's one that, that I love to give to entrepreneurs and people who are into fitness as well. That's awesome. And so just added, uh, I knew about the never split the difference and that's on my list, but the other two I will definitely add. And I do know Chris. Um, so last question, this is sort of fun. And another one that I do ask everyone, this helps get to the more personal side. So 
imagine a scenario where you're on a desert island and yes, it's far-fetched because you would have electricity, but you can listen to one album and one album only, you know, for the rest of your life. Um, who is that album, you know, or who is the artist and why would you choose them? Yeah, it's that's a tough one. I mean, so sort of I grew up in the classic rock with Stones and Beatles and, and Stevie Wonder and Traffic and all those go through my head. But there's a band that was really um, was really special to me. It's a local band called Sons of Champlin. And uh, Bill Champlin, the lead there, he actually was part of uh, Chicago for about 10 years. But um, they are just phenomenal. I used to play the sax, so they have a, for, a, horn, sec, a horn section too. Um, and I think... If I think about all the albums from Sons, the one, I think it's called Welcome to the Dance, is one that's really special to me. So I guess that's my answer. It's it's the Sons of Champlin. I love it. And uh, I have to say that's a unique one. We've had some surprises here. So um, thank you, Chris. So this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, uh, host of the What to Know podcast. I've had the pleasure of spending some time with Chris Redlitz. Chris is the founding partner of Transmedia Capital and the co-founder of The Last Mile, which you should definitely check out, uh, especially if you are out in the California area and it sounds like coming to a prison near you and hopefully it, it makes a, a massive spread. But thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this was great. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.